So this morning, we're talking about our union with Christ. Again, we only have two more weeks left. We got a week this week and next week, and that's it. And then we're like diving into Christmas, diving into some Christmas um, sermons and some Christmas presentations. So this week and next week, are, and we're done with our union with Christ. So this week, we're going to be talking about this idea of putting off sin and putting on Christ. Putting off sin and putting on Christ. Now, let me ask you guys a question this morning to get your wheels turning for a moment. Um, everyone has a closet, right, in their home where they put clothes in, I'm assuming, right? Yeah? Okay, good. That's good. Um, think about your closet for a moment. How big is your closet? Anybody want to volunteer that information? How big is your closet? Todd, how big is your closet? Small. Small? Yeah? Safe to say you don't have a lot of clothes on hand. You do a lot of laundry. All right. Yeah. Brian? Huge? A lot of clothes? Yeah. For your closet? <laughs> wow, okay. So you got a walk-in closet as your addition on the side of your house. Mm. Anybody have a walk-in closet? Brian, do you have a walk-in closet? Okay. Give me a percentage of how many, how many, how much of those clothes do you actually wear? Wow, that's pretty good. That's pretty. I don't even know if I do that. My closet's small. All right, yeah, Chad. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. One last person. One last one. How big is your closet? Mary. Yeah. Oh, so we're going back to last week. So you've got all kinds of things hidden in there besides clothes. See, that would have worked last week for hidden with Christ. But it'll still work. Um, I want you to think about for a moment your closet. I want you to think about the clothes in your closet. And I want you to think about are there clothes in your closet that have been sitting in your closet that you have no desire to wear anymore or that you cannot wear anymore? Yeah? A lot? Clean those things out, would you? Man, find a storage facility or something. You know what I mean? We all kind of have that, right? We all have a closet. We all have clothes in our closet. And we all, for the most part, to a certain degree, have clothes in that closet that either we don't desire to wear anymore or we, we just can't anymore because, in my case, you just don't fit in them anymore. No, that's, that's me. So, like, I'll have clothes in there and I'll look through them like, oh, man, that doesn't fit anymore. Time to get rid of that one. Salvation Army, here we come. But we all have clothes in our closet, right, that we either... You know, we'll, we'll have them, we'll store them, and then uh, typically we'll gravitate towards a, a certain amount or a certain percentage of clothing, and we'll tend to kind of leave the rest there just to kind of hang out there and not really be used much anymore. And um, it's a good illustration for kind of what we're going to talk about today. 
um, with regards to dressing ourselves and how we are dressing ourselves. Instead of physically uh, talking about how we're going to dress ourselves, we're going to talk about how we spiritually dress ourselves this morning and how a Christian should dress themselves um, and what that looks like this morning and how we shouldn't be dressing ourselves. So this kind of works in with this idea of putting on and putting off this morning. And so with, with us wrapping up here, I want to kind of just take a moment here and kind of remind us of the reason why we're doing this and why we're going through this series. There's only two weeks left. Um, but really the essential for our series that we've gone through over the last 10 weeks is this, is to really kind of recover, right, and recapture uh, this biblical worldview concerning our identity, and our self-identification. And the way we do that as Christians is we look beyond ourselves and we look to Christ because Christ is immovable. Christ is fixed. Everything that we've received in Christ is unwavering. It is steadfast. It is firm. It is fixed. And we don't have to worry about our identity being fluid when we're found in Christ because we can look to him for him to order and to understand and to inform what our identity is, and how we should see ourselves. And so we look to Christ in order for this to happen. We look to Christ in order to understand our identity. And we see our union with Christ as the major factor in informing who we are in him. So it's through his work for us on our behalf that we understand who we are in Christ. So essentially, Christ has done every necessary thing to enjoy union with him. The doctrine or the teaching of our union with Christ that we've been looking at over these many weeks, it provides the necessary pretext. It provides the growth, the birth and the growth and the maturity of our faith. It's the foundation for which we understand who we are in him. And it helps us not be swayed by the world, not to be swayed by the culture that's continually telling us who we should be. The culture, the world, often uh, tries to persuade us that our identity can change on a whim with how we feel. But the Christian perspective, the Christian worldview, is that our identity is fixed in Christ. And that is primarily how we should see ourselves. And look at ourselves if we have put our faith in him. And so this term in Christ is a term we've been using a lot and discovering a lot in the New Testament because Paul uses this term in Christ to describe someone who's a Christian over 89 times. Someone who is believing and following Christ, Paul refers to them as people who are in Christ more than 89 times in the New Testament. And really this phrase, it presents this reality of our union with Christ. And it does it in such a way that's unparalleled, that, that is very truthful. And there's a zeal and a vivid clarity to this idea of our union with Christ, of being in him. We talk about this a lot, that when someone comes to Christ, it's not so much about them receiving Christ into their heart, but the Bible more so talks about someone who is believing into Christ. So it's not so much Christ coming in, even though the Spirit lives in us when we're saved. Really what's happening, the tr spiritual transaction that's taking place, is we are believing into something outside of ourselves. 
And so to think about our salvation that way is more appropriate when we talk about the biblical understanding of salvation. But we are in Christ. We are in him. So let's pick up where we left off last week in Colossians chapter 3. I want us to look here at this passage for a moment. And I want us to see how Paul describes those who are in Christ and how we should dress. It's really interesting. So let's go to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. We talked about this last week. We talked about um, our position in Christ. And then we talked about how Paul lays out our position in Christ. And then he follows that up with the pattern in which we should follow or the pattern or the lifestyle in which we would lead with regards to our position. So if we look at verse 1 in chapter 3 in Colossians, this is what it says. If then you have been, what? Raised with Christ. That is your position this morning. If you have put your faith in Christ, you are raised with Christ. That means you have died with Christ because you cannot be raised with him unless you die with him. And so you are raised with Christ, Paul says. And so what is the practice that follows this position? Paul says this, verse, verse 1, seek the things that are above. Look at that. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above not on things of the earth. So where are we positioned? Raised with Christ. What is our practice? Our practice is to seek the things that are above, that are from heaven, and to not seek or set our minds on those things that are of the earth. So Paul kind of draws the listener's attention to these two statements. And he addresses the pattern of the Christian life that reflects the position. And the pattern is summed up with these two statements in verses 1 and 2. But Paul goes on, right? He goes on in this passage, and he begins to flesh this out a little bit. You may be thinking to yourself, okay, well, what does that actually mean? That's a pretty kind of broad statement. That's kind of ambiguous. Okay, set my mind on the things above and not the things of the earth. Well, I don't really have any practical application for that. I don't know how that really kind of applies to my life this morning. Well, Paul tells us how it is that we are to apply these things. Paul shows us and, and gives us a better clarification as to what those patterns, those practices are supposed to look like if we are indeed raised with Christ and reflecting his character and his nature. So he provides us with these qualifications and these features. And it's associated with setting our minds on the things above and not on the things of the earth. And with these two imperative statements, he fleshes this out and he begins it in these two ways. Look at me in verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death what is earthly in you. He's clearly referencing his statement above, his imperative above, which is a command, which is to what? Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth, right? So he's, 
He's kind of giving us a greater explanation. He's broadening this thing out. He's, he's, he's precisely showing us exactly what it is that we are not to set our minds on. So he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, verse 5. And then in verse 12, if you go down with me, he says then, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So Paul is giving us two more commands. He's saying, put to death these things in accord with what I told you, which was not to seek the things of the earth. Then he says, put on, therefore, brethren, these things which are in accord with seeking the things that are above. So he's bringing us into a better understanding of what he has laid out in those first few chapters or first few verses. So let's look at this for a moment. I want, us to, um, I want us to read this for a moment, and I want us to understand, okay, what does this look like for the Christian life? How is it that I can look at what Paul is saying, and I can compare it with my own life right now? Because I think that's really important. It's really important for us as Christians to have the pattern of our life reflect the position that we have in Christ. Paul talks about this with Timothy a lot. He says, let the manner of your life match what you preach. Guard your life as well as guard your doctrine. Guard your life and guard your teaching. Guard your life and guard what you believe. Make sure that those two things are similar in reflecting one another. Because if they don't, then what happens is, is to the outsider, to the non-Christian, you bring a reproach on God's name because what happens is, is someone may look at you and understand you're a Christian and that you follow Christ, but, let your, but yet your pattern of behavior does not match your faith. And so someone from the outside will look at that, that discrepancy and go, there's something not right there. And they will form an uh, inaccurate, inaccurate understanding of who God is. You will be misrepresenting God when you claim to be a Christian, but yet walk in a manner that's completely uh, removed from the call that is on your life. So this pattern that we have to follow in life is extremely important. It's not a matter of just coming in and reading the word and hearing the word and then going off and living life in the same manner you did before. But the word of God that comes in and resonates and, and, and buries deep into the heart of every soul should create change, should create pattern changes, should cause a life to be lived differently than before. So that's what Paul is talking about with this. And that's what we are going to talk about here in these chapters. The Christian who has truly shared in Christ's death by dying to sin, who has been raised with Christ and is seated with Christ, these are all things that we are, and is hidden with Christ, like we talked about last week, will be one who takes great delight in, com in, in conforming their pattern of life to their position in Christ. This is a delight for the Christian. This is a pattern shift, a pattern conforming that the Christian loves to desire to uh, participate in. This, this shouldn't be something that we are, our, our arms are being twisted to do. This shouldn't be something, uh, it should be in some sense a struggle sometimes, but for the most part, this is our new desire. These are our new will. 
because God is working in us through the power of the Spirit. And God has called us to change the pattern of our life in accord with his word. So Paul likens this sort of conforming of our pattern to everyday activity. And what is that everyday activity? Dressing yourself. Everyone, I'm confident, got up this morning, from what I can see, got up this morning, decided to put some clothes on. <laughs> if you didn't, we'd have a problem. Right? So this is a daily activity that we all do. We get up every single morning, and the first thing we do, or maybe not the first, but close to the first thing we do, is we decide what we're going to wear, what we're going to put on. Or we just stay in our jammies all day, and you can do that too if you want. But that's what we do, right? You still have to choose to stay in those things. So Paul uses this pattern, this, this illustration, to kind of get us to think about how it is that we should view our patterns of life as believers. It's a brilliant illustration because everyone can identify with it. Everyone can understand the daily routine of getting up every day and dressing themselves. Or in my case, my wife dressing me for me. Sometimes I'm okay. Sometimes she has the obligatory, you know, um, reference. You know, she's... Sometimes she just, eh, doesn't look at you. You know, you can't do it. Not so much when I go to work, but if we're going out together, she's usually got my, my, my clothes laid out on the bed for me. She's like, this is what you're going to wear tonight. I'm like, oh, okay. I can handle that. But not every day. Not every day. But certain occasions, she'll be the one that's like, okay, this is what you're wearing today. This is what you're wearing tonight. This is where we're going. This is what we're doing. Granted, that doesn't happen a lot right now, but it does happen. But for the most part, we dress ourselves every single day. And so Paul utilizes this similar type of approach. And he does it also in Romans 6. He uses this idea, this common idea, to get across a spiritual principle or spiritual reality. In Romans chapter 6, this is what he says uh, with regards to slavery. Um, he talks about being a slave of Christ, and this is how he puts it in verse 16 and 19. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone, as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And listen to what he says here. He says, I'm speaking in human terms, human terms because of your natural limitations. So ingrained in all of us as Christians, we have this understanding, this ability to understand God's word and to understand uh, spiritual concepts and principles and understandings. But there is still this sense in our veiled understanding that we don't see fully, we don't see clearly. And so Paul, understanding the limitations of his audience, understanding the limitations of their faith and where they were and their growth and their maturity, he puts things plainly for them. And so he says to them, you can't be slaves of two masters. So if you love righteousness, you'll, if you're a slave to righteousness, that's because that's what you serve. And if you are a slave to sin, it's because that's what you serve. 
but you cannot be a slave to righteousness and serve sin, nor can you be a slave to sin and serve righteousness. So he takes this idea of slavery and puts it in practical terms so that we can understand as Christians that we are, if we are slaves to righteousness, we will serve what? Righteousness, not sin. If we are slaves to Christ, we will serve Christ. And this happens to really connect with our pattern of life. Our pattern of life and what, how we live shows us what we're slaves to, what we serve. And so Paul uses this wonderful analogy in slavery, and then he goes on and uses this other analogy in Colossians about dressing yourself so that we can understand what it is he's trying to say. So Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to start here in verse 5. He says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene, talk from your mouth. Ooh, that's a tough one. Do not lie to one another. Sorry, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices. So let's talk about this for a moment. This word death, right? This word death that Paul uses, um, pretty Pretty simple, pretty, pretty understandable. Really, it is exactly what it says it is to make dead or to slay or to deprive of power. Destroy the strength of or to subdue. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying to destroy or deprive the power of this sin. Deprive the power of evil desire. Deprive the power of covetousness and idolatry. Destroy the strength of anger. Destroy the strength of wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. Destroy these things. Subdue them in your own life. Why? Because you have put off the old self. You can no longer live in that manner anymore. Sin has no um, rule over you. The tyranny of it is completely demolished by Christ. We have, sin has no control over us anymore. It has no ability to to form and, and persuade us anymore. It has no ability to control our pattern of life anymore because we are in Christ. And so for the Christian, these patterns and ways of life and lifestyles should be the fruit of the Spirit. We should be putting these things away and putting on what God is producing in us. In the NASB, this is how Paul says it. He says, therefore, consider the earthly members of your body as dead. Consider the earthly members of your body as dead. And you may think to yourself, well, what does he mean by that? 
that word members, what, what does that mean? Like that that's, doesn't really, doesn't really make much sense to me. Put off or consider the earthly members of your body as dead. Paul uses this a lot in his teachings. He uses this a lot uh, when he's talking about sin. He uses this word members a lot when he refers to our old nature or our old life. This is how he renders it in Romans chapter 6, um, verse 13. This is what he says. He says, do not present your members to sin. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What is Paul saying here? He's referring to the body. Don't allow, don't give license to your body to sin. Don't give, don't allow the members of your body to, to sin, to participate in this old way of life because you are now new in Christ. You have a new nature. You are controlled by something different. You are a slave not to sin, but to righteousness. You're a slave to Christ. And so therefore present your very body as a sacrifice, present your very body to him and all of its members so that you would live unto righteousness, so that you can put to death all of those things that Paul is referring to in Colossians, sexual immorality, slander, anger, malice, obscene talk, all of those things. These are all evidences of a, man, of a person who has been renewed in their mind. But Paul also says, put your members of your body to death. Don't give it an excuse. Don't give it license to participate in those old practices. This is what he says in Romans eleven thirty six. 36. This is a, this is a very um, popular passage. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. I appeal to you in light of this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as what? A living sacrifice. He's not necessarily talking about our attitudes or our minds or our thoughts, right? He's talking about our bodies. And when he means bodies, he means the whole of one person. That, that it's not enough just to think right, but it must be... Um, it must be partnered with doing right and, 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 and treating our body right and using our bodies as, as instruments of righteousness and not sin. So it, it, Paul is talking about the, the totality of the human person in all of our humanness in how we treat our bodies and use our bodies and in our minds and how we think and how we speak. He's talking about the totality of us and how we are to live and form our patterns. Why? Because Christ is all, right? From him are all things. From him, you were brought into being. And through him, you find your existence. It is only by the power of Christ that we uh, have our movement and our being and, and breath in our lungs. That is only through Christ that everything we see both in our bodies, in our humanness, out in the world, all of it is sustained by the power of Christ. That's what Paul says here. 
And then he says, and to him are all things. So everything is to him. Everything is for him. Everything is because of him. So when we live our life, our life and our patterns and our practices must be held to the idea and the standard that everything is for Christ and to him as worship. So that's what Paul is saying this morning. But for us, it's about putting to death everything in our lives. Putting to death all of those things that Paul talks about in Colossians 3. See, the death of the Christian in Christ will naturally give rise to a Christian who increasingly becomes dead to sin. The Christian, let me get this straight too. I think this is really important to understand. The Christian, us, me and you, we are personally accountable, personally responsible to Christ to put the practice of sin to death. We are, personally, as believers, as followers of Christ, we are accountable to him and we are responsible for this work. We're not just to sit back and allow God to try to work this out. I mean, he does in his sovereignty and he does in his grace and he does in his mercy, right? But there is a partnership that takes place between the Christian and God, between the Christian and the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that we do have a part to play. We do have to walk out our life and live in obedience to God. And so we are accountable for every action, for every word, for every practice that God has called us into. We're responsible for everything that is a reflection of our old nature. We are accountable to Christ to put these practices of sin to death so that the practices of the old way of life shall be eradicated. How does this happen? It happens when we willingly delight in submitting to his rule. That's how it happens. For the Christian, like I said, it's not an arm-twisting adventure, right? There's not any coercion going on here or manipulation on God's part. God, in his spirit, posits in us the ability and the desire to follow him delightfully. And it brings great pleasure to him to see someone willingly be obedient to him in their lives. And not only that, it should bring great delight in submitting to him and his rule over us. David said it in Psalm 119, how he delights in the commandments. What are the commandments there for? The commandments are there to, to give David the bounds and the constraints for righteousness in life. That if he follows God's commands, he will be in the will of God. And he will bring delight to God's heart. But not only that, it is a delight to the heart of those who follow to want to obey. And so if you're a Christian and you delight in obedience to Christ, that is the evidence of faith. This is an active work. This is not passive. And it requires work on the part of the Christian. Now let me just say, this work does not save you, but it's a work that is evidence of your salvation. We cannot come to God, as we've talked about so much, with our works. We cannot earn God's merit by obedience. 
But God saves unto our obedience. God saves and gives us the capacity and the desire to want to follow. But in every way, the Christian is responsible and accountable to Christ for their own practice of life. And that's really important to understand this morning as we follow him and we desire him. So we're putting to death those old desires, those old attitudes, those things reigning in our mortal bodies. And it's not passive, but it's a vocation. You think about the vocation of your life. You think about the work that you put in each and every day. When you get up in the morning, everyone pretty much has a job they're going to. They're working from home. They're doing something. They're staying at home uh, with their children. Whatever the case may be, everyone pretty much gets up and goes to work and does something and is productive in life, right? There is a vocation that we all, in a sense, participate in in life that we have chosen, right? But this is also a vocation. Our vocation in life spiritually is to put off the old and put on the new, to put off the old nature and the old man and all of those old practices and patterns and put on the new. That is our vocation in Christ this morning. And it is our vocation. And when we do this, we take up this work and this is what happens. We starve old appetites, old desires of the food which nourish it, nourishes them and allows them to grow. We starve them out. We cut them out through obedience to Christ. We say, no more will you reign here. No more will this attitude of anger be my reality. No more will slander come out of my mouth. No more will I talk about someone without any reason for, uh, for what it is that I am stating by fact. No more will we participate in this as the body of Christ. So Paul goes on and he talks about a couple of these things. I want you to see them for a moment here. He talks about this idea of sexual immorality. This word, sexual immorality, we've talked about this in the past, is in the Greek, this word porneia, which you can, you can pretty much understand where we get that English term from, right? And it really is this idea of illicit sexual intercourse that is outside the constraints of God's word. And he prescribes the proper sense and the, the bounds of this activity. Anything outside of that is part of the old man, part of the old nature, right? Impurity, right? Or uncleanness. He talks about that. Impurity, uh, sexual immorality or impurity. This is uncleanness or lustfulness or luxuriousness or impulsive thoughts uh, that, are in, that are impure or impure motives that do not line up with the righteousness of God. Paul says, put these things to death. What's another one? Covetousness eager for gain, greed, greedy desire to be a defrauder. To covet is to eagerly want to desire things for yourself. He says this is idolatry because it takes the place of God. It's a, it's a form of false worship when we covet other things. It's idolatry because it, it renders the possessions of this world to have a greater life-giving influence on us than God in a right relationship and a righteous relationship with him. Paul is very strong on this one. He said, this is false worship because you're replacing God with your greed. 
let me just say, is critical. It's critical for these sins to be listed, to be categorized, to be brought out into the open, to, to have a specific attention brought to them. Why? Why do, you feel, why do you think that Paul had to be so specific about these things with the church? And, and, and when he, when he lays, lays these things out, when he labels these things, this was not specifically just for the Colossians at this point in time. This is a universal truth, a universal statement, a universal teaching that the churches on down the age must come in line with. That every Christian that, that, that is part of a local body and is accountable to Christ and is accountable to one another must in every way begin to form patterns in their life that reflect the righteousness of God. It's so critical. But why does he pay specific attention to these things? Why is it that the Christian must know these things descriptively? Sometimes it makes us feel uncomfortable. I don't know if like what I just shared with you, like the words I just used, that may have kind of maybe brought you back in your seat for a moment, kind of made you squirm a little bit. Right? Because we don't necessarily talk about these issues, talk about these topics, and use language like this that is descriptive when talking about what we need to put to death. But it is critical for us to understand these things and understand them descriptively. To understand them um, in a way that brings um, better clarity to what we're talking about. And, and I think it's because that as we become thoroughly aware of our sin and our actions and our attitudes and our behaviors and our features that are contrary to the work of Christ, it is how we are to identify them and root them out and be, be aware of them. Clarity promotes conviction. Clarity promotes conviction, and, and that's why I feel Paul, I'm not speaking for Paul here, but my assumption is, on my own part, I'm not saying that the scripture is saying this at all, that he was descriptive and laid him out clearly because clarity brings conviction to the heart of every person, especially those who are following Christ. Clarity promotes conviction, and as the holiness of God becomes more profound, it advances the work of repentance. If the believer is clear on what is righteous and good and what is detestable by God. In other words, as we love God's holiness, and as we desire God's holiness, and as we pursue God's holiness, and as we delight in his holiness, what happens it's because we are brought to a greater awareness of our own sin. Because we cannot understand God's holiness outside of an awareness of our own sin. You need that standard. You need the standard of God's holiness to point out how much you fall short. So when, when Paul lays these things out in clarity, it's because he wants them to fully understand and engage in the righteousness and the holiness of God and to clearly understand and apprehend and take hold of the holiness of God by being clear about what we must be putting to death. John 16, 8 says this about the Holy Spirit. 
This is a passage that is often overlooked when we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit this morning. We often always talk about the work of the Holy Spirit being in the gifts of the Spirit and in the fruits of the Spirit. And those are all true and good and relevant and things that we should pursue and teach. But listen to what Jesus says. These are Jesus' words about the work of the Holy Spirit. What is the primary work of the Holy Spirit coming from Jesus' mouth? John 16, 8 says, And when he comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, he will do what? Convict the world. Concerning what? Sin and righteousness and judgment. Whoa, that's a picture of the Holy Spirit that I'm not super down with. So God, what you're saying is, is that the Holy Spirit's primary work in my life as a Christian, when I come to faith, is to convict me? Yep. Uh-huh. Right. That doesn't keep, keep people coming back through the doors, though. <clears throat> and that's why you don't hear about a lot of it in the church. You don't hear about the work of the Holy Spirit in this manner because that does not keep people coming back through the doors because it doesn't make you feel good. But that is not the job of the Holy Spirit to make you feel good and to meet your felt needs. The job of the Holy Spirit is to bring you in line to work righteousness, to work holiness in your life that is pleasing to God because you delight in it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? As the Holy Spirit convicts, and as the Holy Spirit works, and as the Holy Spirit forms the, the, the process and the reality and the practicality of righteousness and godliness in the Christian life, guess what comes from that? Gifts and fruits. You cannot operate in the gifts of the Spirit or experience the fruits of the Spirit if you will not allow the Spirit of God to convict you and lead you into righteousness. We always want to skip to 1 Corinthians 13, 12, 13, and 14, but we never want to read the words of Christ in John 16. So continuing, in verse uh, 9, this is what Paul says. He says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being what? Renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What's happening when you are being renewed? What's happening when you are putting on the new self? You are being renewed in what? Renewed in knowledge after who? After the image of its creator. And what is the image of God? The righteousness of God, the godliness of God, the impeccability of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the wisdom of God, all of these things that make God God, all of these attributes and characteristics, these are the things that are, we are being renewed in if we put on the new self. This is what he says. Put on the new self, put off the old, and put on the new. Dress new this morning so that you can be renewed in your knowledge and understanding of Christ so that you can see him as he truly is in all wisdom and understanding. And being renewed after the image of him. 
Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What Paul is saying there is Christ is sufficient. Christ is supreme to take every person from every demographic, from every background, and renew them in the knowledge of who he is. That there's no distinction that Paul, or that God is not a, a respecter of persons. There's no distinction that one has special ability or special privilege in order to see God and to become like Christ more than the other. But all sitting in the same room have the same capacity to know Christ and to be renewed in the knowledge of who he is because Christ is all. He's all we need, and he's in all. He's in everyone equally if they put their faith in him. There's no distinction, Jew or Gentile. The disposition of your culture, your ethnicity, your teaching, none of that matters anymore because Christ is all and in all. So then he says, put on. Second imperative. Put off or put to death, put on. What does he say? Put on this, as God's chosen people, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and so, so applicable for today, be thankful. Be thankful. So what is Paul saying? One who is in union with Christ is one who is now adorned in a brand new attire. You're adorned in a brand new attire this morning if you are in Christ. Your life is now fashioned with completely new patterns and practices this morning. This is your new life. This is your new wardrobe. This is your new dress. You can go into the closet all day long and pull out as many garments as you need. There's an infinite number of garments for you to put on because the infinite ability of Christ to renew you is everlasting. And it is thorough. And it is complete. And it never fails. When you have put your faith in him, found in him, and you have desired and delighted in obedience, God never runs out of beautiful, holy garments to adorn you with in Christ. That's why we can say that when God sees us, he sees Christ. Because we have put on his garments by putting on the new self. We are dressed in clothes that possess new features, new qualities. The old clothes of the old man simply do not fit anymore as they have been stripped by the grace of Christ through the work of the cross and the power of the gospel in your life. Let me give you an illustrative um, moment here. This is how I used to dress as a kid. <laughs> Check out that shirt. 
Check out those pants, huh? You can't see much of them, thankfully. Look at them plaid pants. Right? Oh, man. Look at that haircut. All right, next one. Look at that shirt, huh? Look at that shirt. I mean, I would never wear that today. I would never wear that today, nor would I wear the, 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 the outfit I had on before, right? That, that, thing, that, 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 that old life, that old style, that old, those old clothes are gone. You think, about, you think about pictures in your mind 20 years ago. Someone brings up a picture. Sometimes you see it on Facebook, right? Uh, old people, they'll come in and they'll scan pictures and they'll post them and they'll tag you in them. Be like, oh, look what I just found, right? And you look at yourself 20 years ago and you look at the clothes you wore and you're like, oh my, I would never wear those clothes again. Like, who what possessed me to put those clothes on? Right? Like, there's something totally different now, right? You're 20 years down the road and now fashion has changed, styles have changed. And so you're not putting on the clothes you wore 20 years ago. Uh, 20 years ago, I was wearing like big baggy pants and like a visor and like my hair was dyed blonde. This was like before I was saved, right? If you were to see a picture of me 20 years ago in the clothes I put on, you would be like, you would look really weird in those pictures or in those clothes now, Chad. Don't ever put those clothes back on. This is, it's the same thing. This is what Paul is trying to tell us. This is what he's trying to say. This is our new spiritual reality in Christ. You can take that picture down now. <laughs> Next. No, this is our new reality in Christ this morning. Dude, take that picture down. We can't wear the old clothes anymore, guys. Why? Because they don't fit anymore. They don't fit. And you don't look good in them. Just like me. I mean, I don't know if I look great in clothes I have on now, but that's debatable. Right? But we just don't look good in those clothes anymore. They don't fit us. They don't work. We have new clothes. We have new clothes. Can someone who's born again desire to cling to the old clothes? No. No, there's, there's no desire there. If you're born again, there's no desire to cling to the old clothes. You don't want to go back into that old closet and put those old clothes on because they don't fit and they don't feel right. That's what Paul's saying. They don't feel right anymore to you. If you know Christ and love him and found in him and delight in him and want to keep his commands, you, you don't love those clothes. Does the Christian who wakes up every morning taking inventory of their spiritual closet desire to put on anger or wrath or slander or covetousness? No. Yes. This cannot be so. Why? Because the word of God tells us this cannot be so. We have entirely new garments that we have put on. What have we put on? We have put on 
kindness. Kindness. What is kindness? It is moral goodness or integrity. We have put on humility. What is humility? Humility is modesty, lowliness of mind, moral littlelessness. That is humility. To not think greater of yourself than who you are. A moral littlelessness, which means you are continually looking to Christ to form and shape who you are. That you in no way have any confidence in yourself to change and to improve who you are. Meekness. What is meekness? A mild disposition. Gentleness of spirit. And love. Everything is bound by love. What is love? It is affection. I do have these slides, by the way. Goodwill. Affection. Love becomes the supreme binding agent for all of these things. Love is the cohesive principle that binds all of these things together. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 regarding our new state. In verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. This is where we all once were. We were all hard to God. We all had calloused hearts to God. We were all alienated from God. We were all darkened in our understanding of Christ at some point in our life. This is where we were. He says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard of him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. And here are these words again, true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 24. It's not up there. Make it a note. Go look it up. Go study it. Go ponder it. Consider it in your heart this morning. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, look at Paul's language, have what? Put on Christ. You put him on. You wear him. You adorn him. He is now your new garment, and he covers you. It is by the power and persuasion of God through the Spirit of Christ that the will of the new man is one who desires a life that adorns the new garments of Christ. This New will. And let me just say, we have a new will. We have a new will. 
We have a new perspective. We have a new desire. God changes that in us by faith. This new will now possesses desires to be renewed in righteousness and godliness as it strips off the old garments of the world for the furnishing of the heavenly things. So what does this mean for us? Last thing. What does this mean for us? These are a series of questions that I'm going to ask both myself and you this morning. What this reality of our union with Christ means for us, guys, is that we must continually examine ourselves. I know. I know you don't want to do that. I don't either. <laughs> I don't. You know, I, I don't want to wake up every morning and continually examine myself and continually examine my thoughts and my patterns of life and my behavior and my motives and my language and the way I speak to people, and the way I'm short with people, uh, and the way I, you know, I may, you know, um, I don't know, dismiss people. We've all done it. We all do it. But this is the call to the Christian, to examine your life continually. And here are some questions I want to pose to you. Is my life fashioned by anger, furnishing sexual immorality, practicing covetousness or slander or envy or obscene talk or crude language? Or has my delighting in Christ formed in me an obedience that now furnishes my life with compassion and kindness? And you may say to yourself, Chad, this just sounds like legalism. This just sounds like you just got to do a whole bunch of really good things and just not do bad things. And then God will love you. No. This is not what this is at all. God has commanded us to do these things. And if he has commanded us to do these things, it is for our benefit. And if we oblige and are obedient in the commands that God has called us to walk in, it will create in us a life of virtuousness, a life of goodness, a life that is pleasing to God, and a life that is thoroughly fruitful and life-giving, that has peace, characterized by joy, established in love. So you can walk away this morning and go, that was just a bunch of rules I heard, and that's fine. You can do that. I'm just telling you what God's saying. I'm just showing you what his commands are for us. You have to wrestle that out with God yourself. Are the patterns of my life set in meekness and patience? Is my life adorned with forgiveness and peace? And is the practice of my life now love because of my position in Christ? What does this also mean? We must observe the truthfulness of sin. As the work of the gospel, the good news of Christ, takes up residency in us and permeates the soul of men, it will inevitably cause the Christian to be increasingly more and more concerned about our sin. 
as we mature. You may say to yourself, Chad, that seems the opposite. Why should I be more concerned about sin when I'm actually putting on Christ? Why should I be more and more concerned? Shouldn't I be less and less concerned about sin because it, 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 its effect and its power and its presence in my life is continually waning and waning and waning? No. No. Why? Why should we be more increasingly concerned about sin? It's because, not because, of the increasing degree of its power and influence, but because it provides this sweeping and comprehensive evidence of our increasing understanding of God's holiness. The work of Christ consistently and unwaveringly causes the Christian to become more repulsed by sin and therefore more delighted and motivated to adorn the righteousness of Christ and the holiness of Christ. So if sin becomes less and less of a big deal to you, that's because the holiness of God is waning. That as we fix our eyes on the holiness of God and the splendor of Christ, it should cause in the heart of every Christian more of a concern of that which falls short. Not so that we're condemned, but so that we're led into a life that is practicing righteousness and godliness. So our concern should be ever increasing. Why? Because our awareness of God's holiness is also ever increasing and increasing as we mature and grow in Christ. And that's what it looks like for the Christian to put off the old and to put on the new. That's what it means to be adorned in Christ and to put off the ways of the old man and the old nature and to love and to desire and to delight in the beauty of Christ through our union with him. Amen? That makes sense? Let's sin. Let's sin.